Welcome. This is Barry Baines from Baines Law, a legal miscellany where we regularly podcast about cases and legal issues, as well as talking to professionals and others who have experience of our legal system. Today, I'm going to give you a short insight into a trial which in 1979 gripped the public imagination and was described as the case of the century. If nothing else, it demonstrated a cardinal principle of English criminal law. Somewhere on Exmoor, sometime in the autumn of 1975, a car stopped and out stepped two men and a dog. The dog was a Great Dane called Rinker. It was not a happy event for Rinker, because hardly had they emerged from the vehicle when one of the men pulled out a Mauser automatic and shot the dog through the head. The gunman then turned to the other and said, now it's your turn. Whatever happened next, no one can be sure, but the gun did not go off. He appeared to struggle with the weapon before getting back into the car and driving off, leaving a dead animal and a distressed owner. This was an event which was to have startling political repercussions and eventually lead to Jeremy Thorpe, a distinguished politician and leader of the Liberal Party, losing his seat at the 1979 general election and then face a trial at the Old Bailey on charges of incitement to murder and conspiring with others to murder Norman Joseph, more popularly known as Norman Scott. Much more recently in 2018, the BBC broadcast a three-parter entitled A Very English Scandal, a drama rather than a documentary, which was skillfully dramatised and wonderful entertainment, but treated by too many including at least one of the active participants, as fact rather than fiction. The gunman was Andrew Gino Newton, who stood trial at Exeter Crown Court for possessing a firearm with intent to endanger life. Newton contended that the gunshot which killed the dog was accidental. He had merely intended to frighten Scott, and afterwards he pretended it had jammed before making off. But there was other evidence that showed the gun had a tendency to jam and that it probably jammed on this occasion because Newton was later seen to dismantle and lubricate the weapon. So how did Jeremy Thorpe come to be associated with this sordid tale? I can tell you that I had the privilege of sitting next to the witness box throughout the evidence of each and every one of what I can only describe as the motley collection of witnesses who the Crown relied upon. The principal witnesses could either be described as co-conspirators or people who had motives of their own for concealing the truth. The first was Peter Bessel, a former Liberal Member of Parliament and a bankrupt, who fled this country hastily to avoid charges of fraud. He provided the main plank of the prosecution evidence. Flown back from Oceanside, California, where he then resided, and granted immunity from prosecution in order to testify, 
a suntanned Bessel strode into court number one in a dark blue pinstripe suit, spectacles on a chain around his neck and dripping with bling. He recounted that Jeremy Thorpe had been so troubled by Scott that he decided to have him killed and that he, Bessel, was to arrange it with Holmes, Thorpe's best man. Only Bessel, Thorpe and Holmes know of some or any of the intricate tale he wove is true. Neither Thorpe nor Holmes gave evidence at trial, and Bessel and Thorpe are now dead. In the course of cross-examination, Bessel admitted to having debts of £75,000 and agreeing with the Daily Telegraph to serialise a book about the trial for a sum of £50,000, a substantial chunk of which was only due if the defendants were convicted. Holmes counsel, John Matthews QC, and George Carman QC for Thorpe, demonstrated Bessel's capacity for bending the truth on countless occasions. In the words of Carman's son, Dominic, Bessel willingly admitted to being a serial liar, a hypocrite, thoroughly amoral, duplicitous, devious, and disgraceful. Bessel admitted that he had a credibility problem. But the tenor of Bessel's evidence was that some years ago, before he was leader of the Liberal Party, Thorpe had admitted to him that he was a homosexual. At that time, of course, homosexuality could amount to a criminal offence, and even if it were public knowledge, it would be career-limiting for Thorpe. According to Bessel, Thorpe, who was by now the leader of the party, indicated he had been having a sexual relationship with Norman Scott, who had become such a nuisance that he needed to be rid of him. For two and a half days, Bessel suffered cross-examination from George Carman on behalf of Thorpe. Didn't you feel it was your duty to tell the party that its leader was a man intent on murder? My first loyalty was to Thorpe. I thought it could be prevented. I saw no purpose in seeking to damage his career in that way. Didn't you think that Mr Thorpe must have needed to see a psychiatrist? Yes, I suppose that is true. Bessel was asked about his financial arrangement with the Daily Telegraph. Doesn't it prick your conscience to make a contract to write about someone you have described as a true and faithful friend. No, sir, it does not. I would not be here if I had not believed it was my responsibility to give evidence, which must inevitably, if it is to be believed, contribute towards a conviction. Does it not prick your conscience to have entered into a contract by which you and your family achieve double the money on a conviction of a former true and loyal friend? Yes, it does. You are prepared to betray a friend for money, aren't you? I think that's an overstatement. George Carman proceeded over the course of the day to take Bessel through a long series of lies, which he agreed he told to protect Thorpe from the consequences of his homosexual activities. Indeed, during his evidence, Bessel claimed that Jeremy Thorpe had also wished to murder another individual who was blackmailing him. 
Describing Bessel's account as an Alice in Wonderland story, Carmen added, if the jury are to believe at all that the leader of the Liberal Party had seriously proposed to you not one, but two murders, which I suggest are figments of your imagination, you must have thought you had a ghastly maniac leading the Liberal Party. Yes, at one stage I thought Mr Thorpe had a crazy, sick obsession about murder. I thought you said he was a man of the highest political integrity. You cannot lead a political party in the House of Commons and spend your time plotting murders as well and do both jobs properly, can you? Carmen suggested that any conversations between the two of them had been nothing but light-hearted fantasies and added, you haven't left out any other murder proposals, have you? You're not going to tell us about a third or a fourth murder proposal tomorrow, are you? No, sir. In answer again to George Carmen, Bessel said that Norman Scott was a pathetic creature who nearly always had a hard luck story. He tended to exaggerate his misfortunes and always put the blame for his own weaknesses or misfortunes on someone else. He was also financially dishonest. When he left the witness box after two and a half days, Bessel's confidence was drained. His tie hung loosely around his neck. The top button of his neat check shirt was unbuttoned and he appeared a dispirited, bedraggled figure. Norman Scott's testimony was hardly more inspiring. The lurid details of his contact with Jeremy Thorpe over a number of years, which go only to motive, took the case no further. True or false, however, his enormous outpourings were an enormous embarrassment to Thorpe. Twice he was rebuked by Mr Justice Cantley for his outbursts from the witness box, and at one stage he admitted he would put himself into contempt of court by refusing to answer further questions. Thinking better of it, Scott then admitted in cross-examination that he had undergone psychiatric treatment and a compulsory spell of detention in hospital. Carmen asks, you met Mr. Thorpe and talked to him for five minutes or less. He hadn't written to a single letter before you went to the House of Commons. Neither had you written a single letter to Mr. Thorpe before that. Why did you say that Mr. Thorpe was a friend of yours when all you had ever done was speak to him for less than five minutes? Because when I had the therapy at the hospital, I was going through a delusion and I had these letters. I was using these letters to say that I had had a relationship with him already. You were saying you had a sexual relationship with Mr. Thorpe before you went to the House of Commons. Yes, obviously that was not true. No, it wasn't. In fairness to you, were you saying it because you were suffering from a delusion? Yes. And you had suffered from other delusions, hadn't you? Yes. Why did you lie? Because I was trying to make myself appear a better person than I was. I cannot explain why. As if those questions and answers were not enough to destroy Scott's evidence, it is worth adding that he went on to admit that he told people his father was an earl or a peer, having changed his name to Scott whilst working in Dublin in the late 1960s. 
The significance of that name change was that it was the family name of Lord Eldon. I pretended I was the son of Lord Eldon. Do you think, asked Carmen, that was a wicked thing? Yes, I do, but I have done so many wicked things in the past. The next treat for judge and jury in this unhappy saga was the so-called hitman, Andrew Gino Newton, who claimed to have accepted a contract to kill Norman Scott from associates of Jeremy Thorpe. Later described by the judge as a chump and a highly incompetent performer, Newton claimed that he had lost his nerve. He told the court that there had been an abortive attempt at the Royal Garden Hotel Kensington when he hid a cold chisel in a bouquet. That failed because according to the would-be assassin, Scott never turned up. He added, it was something I did not want to do. It was something I knew from that day on I could not carry out. It was something I had found out about myself as a person. I wanted to rein in the situation. So I hatched an idea to meet Scott and tell him I'd been hired to protect him, that I was going to frighten him with a bungled murder attempt. The plan was to have a firearm, to lure Scott into an open place and to try and shoot him and have the gun jammed. They arranged to meet at a hotel in Coombe Martin, but Scott turned up with the huge Black Dane. They drove to Porlock and the dog came along too. Then Newton claimed to be tired. Scott offered to drive. All three got out of the car and Newton shot the dog. Newton's explanation of that was, once the dog was out of the way, I could carry on with the plan of frightening Scott. If I had tried levelling the gun at Scott, I could not have been sure that the dog would not have had a go at me. The dog was a monstrous size. So I shot it. When Scott asked him what he'd done to the dog, Newton said he tranquilised it. Then he drove off. The story Newton gave when tried earlier at Exeter Crown Court was that he intended to fire but miss Scott in order to frighten him but the gun jammed. So he told different stories on different occasions. He also agreed he had devoted himself to negotiating the sale of his story and was resolved to milk the case as hard as he could. He had been paid £10,950 for interviews with newspapers and television, plus £5,000 from Holmes. He agreed that everything he had was for sale. Only one of the four defendants gave evidence in their own defence. They really had no need to. In the time between the committal proceedings in the magistrate's court at Minehead and the trial at the Old Bailey, Jeremy Thorpe had lost his parliamentary seat. In his final address to the jury, George Carman said that Thorpe was a man who'd been brought down by hyenas and jackals. Privately, he is a man with a life that has had more than its fair share of grief and agony. Nature so fashioned him that at the time he had the misfortune to meet Norman Scott, he was a man with homosexual tendencies. You will recognise from the evidence that a political life and a political future are now irrevocably and irreversibly denied to him.
Carmen closed his speech with a flourish. This case has been fought and considered against the backcloth of British politics. It is important to remind you of your rights in this case. You have the rights as citizens to vote in elections, but you have a much more important right and a much greater responsibility to vote guilty or not guilty. Mr. Thorpe has spent 20 years in British politics and obtained thousands and thousands of votes in his favor. Now, the most precious 12 votes of all come from you. In accordance with your conscience, I say to you on behalf of Jeremy Thorpe, this prosecution has not been made out. Let this prosecution fold its tent and quietly creep away. It is hardly surprising that the jury acquitted each defendant. It may be, we shall never know, that one or more of the defendants decided the time had come when Scott had to be frightened of. The evidence may admit that possibility. But the crimes alleged were those of inciting and conspiring to murder, and the Crown was a million miles away from being able to prove the charges. Neither is it surprising that Norman Scott, who's now 81, is still talking to those who will listen and giving interviews. According to a fairly recent newspaper report, he's now alleging five different attempts to kill him. Ben Wishaw, the talented actor who played Scott in the BBC dramatisation, went to see Scott, and according to reports, he too was sucked in. People love a conspiracy of one sort or another. At the time of the BBC airing, there was wide talk of an establishment cover-up. The Evening Standard reported, it was widely believed at the time that the trial was rigged. Really? That is a staggering allegation. You only have to examine the evidence to think otherwise. And the trial verdicts were those of a jury of 12 ordinary men and women, not establishment appointees. Tom Mangold, who made a BBC documentary for Panorama, which was not aired at the time because of the acquittals, also emerged from the woodwork with, would you believe it, a copy of the programme which he'd kept for himself, no doubt hoping that one day there would be a buck to be made from his publication. It did not add one jot to the credibility of what we already knew. Then the BBC reported that Gwent police had reopened the investigation because although it was widely believed that Newton had died, it was now believed that he was alive and living under a different name. This was a man who'd been granted immunity from prosecution 40 years before. He was, on his own version, a co-conspirator and had been thoroughly discredited. Someone at Gwent rapidly thought better of it and the idea was dropped. Mr Justice Cantley, who presided over the trial, has been criticised for being an establishment man and favouring the accused. But he did no more than one would expect of any judge trying a case properly. And it is difficult to imagine the outcome of this trial would have been other than the same before a different judge. Ultimately, the verdict was the jury's alone. It has to be remembered that this was a case which went through a full old-fashioned style committal, with evidence first being heard in the magistrate's court at Minehead in the full glare of publicity. The prosecution witnesses were called and cross-examined. 
On balance, the magistrates found there was a case to send for trial at the Old Bailey. There then took place what was called at the time the trial of the century, over the course of several weeks. No stone was left unturned. If nothing else, this was a public demonstration of British justice. It reminds us of the landmark case of Wilmington against the Director of Public Prosecutions, where Viscount Sankey said, throughout the web of English criminal law, one golden thread is always to be seen, that it is the duty of the prosecution to prove the prisoner's guilt. If at the end, and on the whole of the case, there is a reasonable doubt created by the evidence given by either prosecution or the prisoner, the prosecution has not made out the case and the prisoner is entitled to an acquittal. No matter what the charge or where the trial, the principle that the prosecution must prove the guilt of the prisoner is part of the common law of England and no attempt to whittle it down can be entertained. Thank you for listening to Bain's Law. Listen out for future podcasts where we will continue to discuss issues of interest to the legal community. If there is a professional perspective that you would like to share, get in touch via our website at www.barrybaines.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Baines Law. We look forward to presenting to you again very soon on Bain's Law.